Genesis chapter 4 is where we are today. This is the last sermon in this back and forth between John and Genesis business that we've been doing, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. We're going to do this again sometime uh, soon, perhaps right after Christmas, uh, do two different passages in Scripture, be able to look at them together and next to each other week after week, uh, because the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of John, I mean, John wrote his gospel, his first few chapters, to be understood uh, as a recreation, a new work of God in light of the first creation. It's worked so well. But since we're talking about Genesis chapter 4 today, we're talking about Cain and Abel, which means we're talking about sin. Who woke up and was excited this morning to talk about sin today? Yeah, and it's just, it's, it's inherently a serious topic, so this is a more serious sermon. And as you know, I, I like to have fun uh, and have, you know, something of a uh, blithe spirit. And so uh, it's difficult sometimes to talk about these serious things, but necessary because we have a serious problem, each of us, with sin. So uh, one joke for you this morning, right now, that has nothing to do with the sermon, just to uh, throw us all a bone and have a laugh together. I think this is hilarious. You ready? So a uh, man is struggling with anxiety, and he feels like he's being followed. So he goes to the library, and he asks the librarian, hey, do you have any books on paranoia and anxiety? And the librarian says, yes, they're right behind you. It's a thinking person's joke. It takes a second. The books are right behind you. I thought, I think that's hilarious. Thank you. Thank you. I know. I know. I know. I need a rim shot. Ah. Have you ever felt conflicted? Have you ever struggled over wanting two different things at the same time? It happens to all of us all the time. Ever conflicted about what to eat for lunch? Don't know which thing to eat. You ever so conflicted about to eat for lunch, you spit and you just move on. You ever conflicted about what to buy between two things? Or should I spend money on this or shouldn't I? You've been conflicted in that way. Well, these happen all the time, and they're awful, awful surface-leveled uh, conflicts, but yet we get conflicted over them, not sure which way we want to go or what thing we want to do. But far, far more serious, we are each of us all conflicted over whether to do good or whether to do evil. And it's so shocking to our sensibilities to take ourselves seriously and realize that there is a dark place in us that wants to do evil, great evil. And there's also this part of us that wants to do good, and we live conflicted lives to where the Apostle Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. And this is what we're talking about today. Being a wretched person, but with a gracious God. Now this happens by Genesis chapter 4, all that's happened so far in all of time space is that God has created everything. He has arranged the garden perfectly for Adam and Eve, given them a command. They disobeyed, failed, and have been ejected from the garden. And yet here we are in just the very next generation with their sons, Cain and Abel. And sin continues on and sin begets ever worse sin. Let's read Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock of their fatted portions. 
The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they're out in the field, Cain attacked and killed his brother Abel. Says the word of the Lord for us today. We'll stop reading there for now. There's a little humor in this. There's no humor in this. This is just a sad, difficult passage. But let's begin talking about this by just asking a series of questions about the passage. First of all, what exactly does this teach us about sin? And if this passage is here to teach us about the nature of sin and our relationship with it, well, then the first thing we need to know is what exactly is this first sin that Cain does? Obviously, the second sin that Cain does is murdering his brother. That's clear enough. But what is this first thing? Why does God reject Cain's offering? Some have said over time that it's the offering. He's offering the wrong thing. It needs to be an animal. Uh, this doesn't quite work because in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, there's all kinds of offerings that are prescribed that aren't animals. There are also all kinds of times when you can offer grain offerings. So that doesn't quite seem to fit it. Others said it's because of the quality of the offering, and there may be something to this. Not that it's grain versus an animal, but that the animal is specified here as uh, the first fruits, a, a young fatted calf, and the best portion of the best animal. Uh, what Abel offers is the best cuts, the best part of what he's received, and perhaps what Cain is offering is, you know, just some grain, just a piece of it, but not the best piece of it. Perhaps. This is, after all, perhaps what uh, Hebrews chapter 11 has in mind when Hebrews chapter 11 lists this and says, by faith, Abel offered the better sacrifice. Perhaps we're talking about the literal sacrifice here. But there's also a hint into what's going on when God speaks to Cain just subsequently to this. And he says, if you do good, won't you be accepted? Verse 7, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? The idea being surely here, that Cain is not doing what is right, and this is why his offering is rejected. At the same time, his offering might be deficient, but that's always the way it is. If we're not doing right, then what we bring in offering is always deficient. Our offerings are directly related to our lives and how we offer ourselves to God. Cain is not doing right. There is sin in his life, and it leads to an insufficient sacrifice and an unaccepted sacrifice by God. And what's Cain's response? Furious. His face is downcast, or he's despondent, is how it says here. He's absolutely livid and furious. But the Lord comes to him and says, why? Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for it, you, but you must rule over it. So what does this passage teach us about sin? First of all, it teaches us that sin begets more sin. 
Sin leads to sin. And sin doesn't just lead to sin, but it leads to ever-worsening sin. We saw the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and now here we see that Cain does not live right at all, is rejected by God, and his rejection by God doesn't lead him towards repentance. It leads him towards fury. It leads him towards jealousy against his brother, which leads him towards murder of his brother. We need to understand that sin leads to more sin. You might have the idea in your life, I can keep a little bit of sin around. This isn't that big a deal. All right, I'm not doing the big ones. I'm doing a little one, and this is just sort of the pet sin in my life, and nobody knows about it, and I can keep it private. That's not the case. Don't kid yourself. Don't fool yourself. Sin leads to more sin. Likewise, there's only one thing to do with sin when you're a Christian, and that is to repent of it completely. You can't think to yourself, well, I know I need to get rid of this sin in my life, whichever sin it is. I'll just slowly work on it and get a little bit better at it every day. No, because sin leads to more sin. Anytime it's committed, anytime sinful desires indulged, it simply conquers us more. Uh, there's only one thing to do, and in uh, worldly terms, it's cold turkey. Scriptural terms, it's repentance. We must turn away from it completely. That is all there is because sin will lead to more sin. What else does this teach us about sin? It teaches us that sin is crouching at the door. What an interesting passage this is. Sin here is personified. It's this entity that wants to consume, that wants to rule over, that wants to enslave Cain. God says to Cain, sin is right there waiting to get you. You're not going to get it. If you do this, it will have gotten you. Sin is looking to get you, but you must rule over it. What's our application for this? We have to be prepared to resist sin. Won't be simply enough for us to, you know, go about piddling along in our lives here and there, and then when temptation arrives, uh, think we're suddenly going to be able to deal with this rightly and overcome it. We have to make preparation for resisting sin. We have to realize that we're always at wartime. There's always a battle going on because there's always sin at the door looking to consume us and overcome us. And so we can't let there be times in our life when we're off guard about this. Because when we're off guard, we will give in to sin and be conquered by it. We can make no provision for sin. Likewise, we must make provision to resist sin, as Scripture teaches us here. So I ask you, when are you most tempted to do the sin that you struggle with? Is it at certain places? Don't go near those places. Is it when you're alone at certain times, like David being alone in his castle? Well, don't be alone there. Is it that after midnight, the temptation is stronger for you? Well, then go to bed. Is it when you're with, not when you're alone, but is it when you're with certain people? Don't be with those people. We must make provision to resist sin, knowing the circumstances in which it is hardest for us to resist it and avoiding those circumstances altogether because sin is crouching at the door. What else does this passage teach us about sin? It teaches us that sin hurts other people. Man, we kid ourselves into thinking that my sins are private, <laughs> that they are quiet and nobody knows about them, and I keep it in my mind, uh, and I keep it to myself, and it's not hurting anyone. 
but it always does. So much of our society is based around some laws now that are the, the idea being why things should be permissible is if you can't draw a direct line to how it hurts somebody else. And so with like now overwhelmingly even more so, one of the things that happened in the past week that isn't as talked about as publicly is how many more states legalize marijuana uh, for recreational use. Um, because using the argument, well, it's not hurting anybody else. Oh, it is. I mean, if we're to consider drunkenness a sin, then being high is as well. And these things hurt the people around us. They always hurt the people around us. Don't kid yourself that your sins are not hurting the people around you. Your sin always hurts the people around you. And the people around you are the ones you love the most. But it will hurt them as well. Sin breaks up families. Do you see it here in the text? A brother against a brother. Adam and Eve, it becomes a husband against a wife after sin comes into their lives and into their relationships. Sin always hurts other people. What sins are we talking about here specifically? Well, for Cain, it is first, he's not living right, whatever that means. Then it is this rage and fury that finally begets murder, sin all the way down. What for us? Is there a list of Scripture is there a list in Scripture that describes for us what these sins are? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's actually several of them. <laughs> Let's take a look at one of them today. I'm just going to read for you. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you from Galatians chapter 5. Now, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, giving them this list. He says, there is the Spirit who is trying to guide you, and then there is the world, the flesh, he says. The flesh here doesn't mean necessarily just your body, but it means the sinful desire that's there. And it's exactly what's going on with Cain, where you have God saying to Cain, don't do it. It's crouching at the door, but you need to overcome it. Don't do it. And then also there is sin crouching at the door. So likewise here in Galatians, Paul says there is the Spirit. Two ways you can live. You can live by the Spirit or you can live by the flesh. And he says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity. And these things we've said that are true about sin are true for each one of these. Namely, that sin begets sin. The promiscuity begets more promiscuity. That sin is crouching at the door, longing to overtake you. And that these sins, each and every one of them, will hurt other people. Don't kid yourself. How's this list go? Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife. Have you in the last week felt the hatred, the fury at the door looking to take you over, you must overcome it. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteous results that God requires, James says in James chapter 1. Hatred is knocking at the door. It's crouching at the door. If you allow it in, it will consume you. What does the passage say? Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition. Ambition is the idea of wanting to have conquered something else. 
But then if you fall prey to this as a sin, this selfish ambition, and find yourself conquered by your desire to conquer, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. That is to mean this list is not exhaustive, but it's, it helps us get a good start. Anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, self-control. Against these there is no law, he says. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking others, envying one another. Yeah, the list is there. And what's true about all these sins, whichever one it is you struggle with, whichever ones it is you struggle with, know this, sin begets more sin. Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to consume you. If you indulge in it, it will consume you. Know that sin hurts other people. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you've kept this private enough or quiet enough that it's not affecting the people you love. Another serious thing we have to talk about, from serious to serious here, is what is this passage? So that's what this passage teaches us about sin. What does this passage teach us about us and our natural ability? Does Cain have any real ability to conquer sin here, or is he bound by it? Does he have free will or a bound will here? People have been looking back to this passage since the beginning to try and answer this question and understand what kind of people we are. What is actually going on inside of us? Sometimes we feel like we want good. Other times we know we don't want good. Sometimes we want to do good, but we don't feel like we can or we want to resist sin, but we already feel conquered by it. What is it to be a human? Even if you look back to our passage last week in John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, and then after he speaks to Nicodemus, he goes into Jerusalem to the crowds, and what does the Bible say? It says he didn't trust himself to any of them because he knew what was in a man. He didn't need anyone's testimony to explain what was in their hearts, and so he did not entrust himself to them. I don't think you and I need anyone to explain how bad we are inside because we're already shocked by the depth of our own sin, the wrong desire that comes in our life. We all live ashamed of some of the things we've desired or wanted or the things that we've done, the sin that we've done. What does this passage tell us about us? Well, first of all, you need to know that we don't always want to do right just a reality of who we are. We don't even always want to do right. Some of the desires that we have are evil and wrong, and we want to do wrong. This is the uh, world's problem with simply affirming whatever you desire and saying, you know, what you desire, you ought to be able to do. Well, the problem is we all desire to do evil. So maybe you shouldn't be able to do everything that you desire because not all of it's good. We don't always want right. Our, our wanter, whatever that is in us, the desire to want right is broken, and we don't want right all the time. Second, even if we do want right sometimes, we find ourselves unable to do what is right. We find that 
our nature is broken, that by nature we're children of wrath. And even if sometimes we want to do what is right, as in sometimes you see people do good and right out there in the world, and it's the grace of God that they did apart from God. But also, you know, those same people and us also, sometimes we want to do right and we can't. Sometimes um, we want to resist sin and we find no ability to resist sin because we're enslaved to sin apart from the grace of God. What does this passage tell us about ourselves? It gets worse. While we each want freedom from the slavery to sin, we also still, if you search yourself, know that we want to be free from slavery to sin, but still with the ability to go on sinning whenever we want to. We don't want it to control us, but I still want to be able to do it whenever I want to. Wretched man that I am, Paul says. I agree with him. Finally, what does this passage tell us about sin? We prefer to hide it rather than to be healed. We talked about this again last week in John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, light has come into the world. You think everyone would be rejoicing, but they're not. People have hated the light. They love the darkness. Do you know why they love the darkness? Because their deeds were evil and they wanted to hide that fact. The real truth is this, light's come into the world and sometimes we prefer to hide and keep our sin rather than be healed of it. This so much for us and what is in us. I do have good news, of course. You Christians know that there's always good news. The next question is this. So what is sin? You know what sin is now. And what's in us? It's not a pretty picture. So what hope do we have? That's the next question. If we're this deficient and sin is that bad, what hope is there? Because Cain, at no point, though God comes to Cain, Cain at no point seems to want to do right. He hears God in the next moment. It's, I hear you, and let's go out in the field, Abel. And he kills his brother. There's, there's no distance. There's no space or time there. He does exactly what's wrong. What hope is there for us? Our hope is this, that God desires good for us. That God is powerful enough to do good for us. That though we're broken and need to be fixed, God has provided a way for us to be fixed. Specifically in this passage, here's your hope. God is with us even in our helplessness. Do you know that God doesn't just leave Cain alone here, but he goes to Cain at the beginning and graciously says to him, God comes down to Cain and says, don't do it. God is rooting for Cain. God says, why are you downcast? Don't be so upset. Just just do right. Live right, and you will be accepted. God wants him to be accepted. God says, but sin is crouching at the door. Come on, Cain, rule over it. God comes down, not just with commands to Cain, but with encouragement to Cain. God is for Cain, even before he kills Abel. God wants good here. And you see this from the garden to this point. Adam and Eve sin, they must leave the presence of God and the garden, and yet, what does God do for them in the midst of their sins? He provides for them clothing. He takes care of them. He gives them what they need. How does this passage begin? Often overlooked, but it begins with Adam and Eve having a child, and Eve realizing, even in naming him Cain, that the name apparently means God has helped us. She says, 
I have made a male child with the Lord's help. She knows. God is still for them even in their sin. You see, God is with us in our helplessness before sin, and then God is still there working on behalf of Adam and Eve and even on behalf of Cain after his sin. Do you see that God is gracious to Cain even after he sins? We didn't read the rest of this passage, but I'll give you the refresher. God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, I know what you did. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are going to be cursed because of your sin. Now you're going to go work the ground and it will give nothing good for you. You're going to live your lives scrounging for the rest of your life. You'll never be able to plant. You'll never be able to grow. The earth will be against you now. And you're going to wander this world scrounging. That will be your life. And Cain says, it's too much. Because if people see me, they'll know and they'll kill me. And God gives Cain a mark. And he says, no, everyone will see this mark. And they will know that they are not to do any harm to you. And that if they do, then I will punish them. It will be sin for them to do that and I will punish them. You understand that the mark that God gives Cain is God's grace for Cain? He's going to be suffering in his sins and live a life suffering because of what he did. But God gives him a mark so that no one else is going to try and take vengeance against him. It's just like making clothes for Adam and Eve when they're kicked out of the garden. God provides graciously even in their sin. God is with him in his hopelessness beforehand. God is with him in his sin afterwards. God is with us in our helplessness and once good for you even from the day you were born. And God's desire is for you to be right and made right even in our sin. God comes to us graciously, not in judgment that will surely come someday, but with patience and gentleness in order to bring about restoration in our lives. When Christ comes into the world, he says, from last week in John chapter 3, that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. When Christ comes into your life, it is not initially to bring condemnation, although you will find conviction for your sin to know what you did right, wrong. But His desire is to see you saved, not to see you judged. Judgment comes, but God's desire is that you would be saved. So what hope do we have? Well, if we're talking about the freedom or the bondage of the will as we have to in this passage, if we're going to talk about will and our ability or inability, then we'll have to stay focused on God's will primarily. Let's leave behind what we are able to do or not able to do, what we want or don't want, how bound or free our will is, and let's talk about God's will. Here's God's will. His desire is your salvation. That's the center of the focus of the discussion about will is that God, not because we've done good because we haven't, God is good himself and loves us and wants good, not because we've done anything, but that's who he is. The good news is easy to share because the good news is this God is great. There's not much else to say about it. I don't know what other superlatives to add other than the fact that this God is better than we could have hoped for. His desire is our salvation, and he is working on our behalf at all times. So what do we need to do? Given the seriousness of sin, given the brokenness in our lives, given the hope that we have in God, what do we need to do? Well, what situation are you in today? Is the situation that you're in that you lack wisdom? Do you not know what to do next? Are you not entirely sure what is right and what is wrong? 
will ask God, and He will provide you wisdom and make it clear to you what is sinful and what is not. He doesn't want you to be confused. He didn't leave any gray area for you. God wants to lead you right and wisdom towards what is good and not towards what is evil. So are you unsure what you're supposed to be doing? Go to Him and ask for wisdom, and He will surely provide it. He has promised as much. Do you feel that you lack the power to follow him? Do you feel still enslaved to sin? What scripture says is that before God comes into our life, we are enslaved to sin. There's not an option. We're going to. But then after the Holy Spirit comes into our life, once we trust Christ and he comes and starts to change us, he gives us a new heart, a new spirit, his spirit. And in this power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to resist sin, we no longer need to live as slaves to sin like we once were. We are now freed from those shackles so that we could be enslaved to Christ. So do you feel like you lack the power to overcome sin? Is sin even this morning crouching at the door in your life and you just dread it because you know it's going to overcome you and you don't feel strong enough to resist it? Ask him for empowerment. He will provide it. Do you not know what's right to do? Ask him for wisdom. Do you not feel strong enough to overcome? Ask him for strength. The Holy Spirit is with us to empower us and to guide us both. Here's a very serious one. Do you lack the will to follow him? It's possible that you're here today just to make somebody else happy. You're not really interested in following Christ. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying perhaps you came along to make somebody else happy or you're here to appease somebody else. You don't really have the will to follow God. You don't really want to change your life. Ask him to change what you want. Go to him and say, Father God, change the desires of my heart. Give me a new heart. Change what I want. Fix my wanter, my desires. Do you lack the will to follow him? Then ask him to change your will and what you want. Are you covered in sin today? Well, then ask him for forgiveness. As far as being covered in sin, we have the archetypal example of just being covered in filthy. Do you know the archetypal example of being covered in filthy that we all know about? It comes from Charlie Brown. It's Pigpen. The child who is perpetually a cloud of dust. He's dirty all over and all the time. He walks around always dusty. Never really sure about that kid, Pigpen. That's us and our sin. It's just all over us. You think we've hidden it. We haven't hidden it. We're covered in it. We're always covered in it. The archetypal example is Pigpen. But I can tell you, I know the personal example. It's Zachary Bird. That kid is a mess. Every time he goes outside, he wants to go and play in the dirt, and then immediately it's on his hands. If it's on his hands, it's going to be all over his mouth and face. This time he wipes his nose and wipes dirt all over his nose. Yesterday, we were outside not 10 minutes. Not 10 minutes. And he and the other children picked up some sidewalk chalk to draw with it, but he got the black piece of sidewalk chalk, and there was black dust on him, and his fa- he, looked like a, he looked like a chimney sweep. He was covered. In, I have no idea. It took me a while to figure out why he was so dirty and how he got that way so quickly. But don't you know, every time I take him over to the sink, and I wash his hands off, and I wash his face off, and we clean that kid up good as new. But this is us before God. 
Don't you know, not 10 minutes. We might sin. But don't you know that every time you go to Christ in belief, in repentance, a a real commitment to stop sinning in this way again, his desire is to wash us clean. He, He wants us to be made new. And so he will. This is the good news and our hope. We are worse than we thought we were. He is better than we could have imagined. So there are two ways this morning. As John, uh, as Paul said in Galatians, there's the way of the flesh, there's the way of the Spirit. The flesh does these things. The Holy Spirit bears these good things. Let's say it another way in the words of Genesis chapter 4. There are two things at the door this morning. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to consume you and overcome you. If you let it in, it will own you. But Christ is knocking at the door this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. God says to us in Revelation, anyone who answers, I will come in and eat with him. Two things at the door today. Sin is crouching at the door and Christ is standing at the door knocking, wanting to make us right. If you believe, if you put your trust in Christ, if you will confess all these sins to Him, He will wash you clean of them. He knows that we're broken inside. And He has promised that He will give us a new heart, a new spirit, His spirit. He will let us be born again, made over again in Christ, so that we will now have empowerment and strength to actually resist sin and live lives pleasing to God by Christ, for Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, so that Christ will be all in all for us today. Sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. But Christ is also knocking at the door, and he will give you strength to master it, forgiveness for your failures, and hope for the future. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you're so gracious to us. I thank you that in you, there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, because You are loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and gentle. Father God, please come into our lives and change them. Remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Make us right. Help us to trust and hope hope in you. And all this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.